0: Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 for us. The Apostle Paul says here, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God." Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we remember your birth every year at this time. And Lord, I pray today that through your word we would be reminded in such a way that would lead us to worship, that you would remind us of your birth in such a way that it would lead us to faith and dependence and, and obedience, Lord, I pray that we would respond to you the way that the, the church in Laodicea in, in Revelation chapter 3 should have responded when you were standing at the door knocking. Lord, I pray that our church today would open up the door for you to come in, that we would dine with you today, that we would eat of your, of your flesh and drink of your blood, that we would indeed feast on you in the goodness that is the incarnation. So Lord, please bless the preaching of your word, bless the hearing of your word. Lord, may this Christmas season be one of of true worship for what you have done. Lord, we thank you for your word. Please open it up to us today. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Well, we're in the book of Galatians today, and the entire letter, the entire book of Galatians is, it's an extremely important book in in all that it teaches about uh, the centrality of the gospel, uh, the specificity of the gospel, but today in our text, we're really going to focus in on some very pertinent points concerning specifically Christ's first advent, And these are the points that that we're going to see today from our text. First, in verse 3, what we're going to see is our great need. Our great need for Christ's coming to this earth. We're going to see that this is this state of bondage that we are all in, described there in verse 3. In verse 4, we're going to be reminded of the precise timing and the conditions surrounding the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then finally in verses 5 through 7, we're going to see the results, the benefits of Christ having come to this earth. And there Paul's going to list for us some of the, what what we're going to see are the infinitely valuable gifts that accompany our salvations as a a result of what began there over 2,000 years ago in the city of Bethlehem. As we begin to think about Christmas and the incarnation in general, what we're going to see from our text today is that we can't simply begin with, with thoughts of a cute little nativity scene with, with baby Jesus there snuggled up nice and warm with his parents, with uh, people coming and bringing him um, massive amounts of gifts and laying them down at his feet. No, the unfortunate reality, brothers and sisters, is that the story actually begins in a much darker A much more bleak and a much more terrifying place. The story actually begins in a scene which consists of all of mankind, including every single one of us in this church today, a scene where we're all found in a hopeless enslavement and bondage to a very wicked slave master, namely the Prince of the Power of the Air. And so the text, and therefore our story today, will begin with this state that all mankind has found himself in, a state of desperate need. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 4, verse 3 again for us. It says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world as we begin our examination of this verse here by carefully noting Paul's words to these churches. Because Paul is going to go on to describe this this bondage that has gained a hold on all the poor souls. But first, let's see just who exactly it is that the apostle Paul is including as being held in this bondage. Paul is writing the letter to the churches of Galatia And these churches would have certainly consisted of predominantly Gentile Christians. Now every Jew knows that the Gentiles were by nature a sinful people. The Gentiles were the pagans. The Gentiles were the heathen. They were the unclean goyim. They were the fallen nations. Of course the Gentiles are held in bondage to the elemental things of the world. But notice how Paul began verse 3 there by saying, So also we, Paul, the great Jew, includes himself with all of his fellow Torah-quoting Jews as having also been underneath the same hold of bondage. And so I want us to look at exactly what this bondage that Paul says everyone was once bound to. I think a helpful reference to see and figure out what this bondage is is to turn to a, a, a parallel verse Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 we should turn there this is very helpful because there the apostle Paul actually uses very similar language but there expands upon the thought that he's explaining here in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 the apostle Paul says it like this He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. So here we see the Apostle Paul using the same phrase, the same language, the elementary principles of the world. And here he expounds upon that with these other descriptors. Those other descriptors we just read from Colossians 2.8, captivating philosophies, it says. Empty deception, all of which are the tradition of men. And so as you think about this variety of descriptors here use these different forms of enslavement that Paul lists here in Colossians 2.8, notice what it said there at the end of the verse the end of verse eight, notice most importantly, what all of these philosophies, these traditions of men, what are they in opposition to? They're all in opposition to Christ. In other words, it's one or the other. It's either the world's way of thinking, a way of thinking that actually enslaves you and holds you in bondage, or it's Christ. And so likewise, as we think about the book that, that we're actually looking at and the text we're actually looking at today, which is Galatians, the book of Colossians was, was also written predominantly to Gentile Christians, uh, these who would have almost certainly all have, before coming to Christ, been given over to worldly philosophy and empty deceptions. But what again about what Paul said at the beginning of Galatians 4.3? What about the Jews? What about what Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, said back in our text? How is it that Paul lumps himself and all of his fellow Jews into the same situation as these Gentiles as being held in bondage to the elementary principles of the world? What's the commonality between the bondage to these elemental things that all of the world is under, both Jew and Gentile? Well, think of it like this. Foundationally... Both Jew and Gentile begin in the same place. They have the same starting point, and that is union with Adam, their federal head, their representative. Romans 5.19 explains it like this. There Paul said, for as through, one's ma- through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So we all start there, Jew and Gentile, we start as sinners. And as both Jew and Gentile alike begin as sinners, they both continue alike as sinners. As Jesus taught in John eight thirty four, where there he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So I think about these realities of both Jew and Gentile um, having sinful natures, and both therefore continuing in their sin. I think that reality is somewhat commonly recognized and acknowledged that both Jew and Gentile are all born sinful. But what I think is even more significant to note than simply the reality of sin in all is the commonality of just how it is that every man who is held in this bondage attempts to free himself from that bondage. It's this vain attempt that all men make to free themselves from their bondage that makes the greatest congruity and similarity between all false religion, all false philosophy of both Jews and Gentiles. And it's the biggest aspect, I think, of what the Apostle Paul is referring to here in the language that he uses as the elementary things of the world. It's this world-encompassing, empty deception This worldwide elementary principle, which I think is known to us as works righteousness, works, righteousness, also known as legalism, AKA self justification, the worldwide natural man's way of thinking that he can actually justify himself, that he can actually make himself good enough obtain a state of righteousness by keeping a set of rules or by keeping a set of laws well enough that one day he will be saved. This is how all of the world naturally thinks. And this is the great deception. It's the great deception that man can justify himself by being good enough. What's also important to understand is that It doesn't matter which set of rules you're trying to keep in order to produce a self-righteousness. It's still all in vain. It doesn't matter if the rules you're trying to keep to justify yourself are those made up by Muhammad, by Joseph Smith, by Satan himself, or even God's rules. To to try to attain to justification through law-keeping is an empty deception It's the ladder of sand that all of mankind is attempting to climb. As you look around the world at all of its religions that exist today, they all boil down to the same sort of moralism, a general concept of keeping enough rules well enough that God will be pleased. Islam, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, they all unashamedly hold to a form of... Of works righteousness and so whether it's the example of a jew seeking righteousness righteousness by keeping the written law of god or if it's the pagan attempting to keep the works of the law that are written on their hearts we see the results of man's very base man's very simplistic and man's very unregenerate unregenerate thinking are all the same man takes law which was intended really intended to show one their lack, show one their need, and man attempts to use God's law to actually display his worthiness. And only the most spiritually childish person, which is why Paul includes that language there in verse three of Galatians four, where he said, while we were children, only the most spiritually childish person would have such a low view of God and have such a high view of himself to think That their righteousness will be good enough for a holy God. And so, brothers and sisters, remember that this was also once all of our pitiful and inescapable states of bondage. We were all likewise held to the elemental things of this world. And this is why we all desperately needed to be set free. This is why we all needed a Christmas. And praise God for the contents of the next verses in our text. Because we now we've seen our need. But let's now turn our attention to what God did to answer and to provide for our desperate need. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I don't know um, if anyone could have imagined that one day I would love. and 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 like to study conjunctions but this word here at the beginning of verse four but it makes all the difference between my much deserved and certain eternity in hell and what is now my certain destination of a timeless existence in the presence of the triune god forever the difference is but but god acted that's the difference maker for everyone who is in christ We were in bondage under the elemental things of this world, but but when the fullness of the times came. What does that mean, when the fullness of the times came? Well, it means when God, who is sovereign over all of time, when he had orchestrated everything in this world to be just as he had planned it, just as he had wanted it from the beginning of time itself. That's when he sent forth his Son, and we can wonder maybe as we, as we think back to why 2,000 years ago? Why was that the fullness of the times for the Christ to come? Well, I think we can, if we look back in history, I think that we can even see some of the ways in which God's providential workings were, were preparing the way for the Christ to come. One of the most notable, I think, is the fact that God had obviously used Alexander the Great to spread Koine Greek throughout all the Mediterranean region as he was conquering all of those areas. God used Alexander the Great to spread the language that the New Testament would be written in so that once it was written, it could spread like wildfire and everyone who read it could understand it. God also used the Romans, He used the Romans to build extensive roadways. The Romans had connected every major city in the Middle East, and the Apostle Paul himself would one day walk down all those roads and spread the gospel of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But even more significant than God's sovereign use of all of these pagan nations to prepare the way for Christ, I think most importantly, God prepared the way for his promised Messiah in the words of the Bible, in the words of his word, God had, since the first pages of Genesis, been building up to this time. He had been building up for the fullness of the time. God had been constantly and progressively revealing more and more about the fullness of this time to the point that the people of God were anxiously awaiting his coming. We see this, this anxious waiting in texts like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, where There it says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets themselves were searching the time. What's going to be the fullness of the time? God had also been preparing his remnant in another way, in his word. Uh, Besides simply prophetically, Galatians chapter 3.24 tells us that the law had become our tutor to lead us to Christ so so that we may be justified by faith. For thousands of years, God had been training his people through the Old Testament writings. He had been convincing them. He had been hammering home the fact that they are not covenant keepers, that they are not law keepers, but they are in fact hopeless law breakers who needed a Messiah to come. And so after all of God's sovereign preparation, when the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son. That's what marks the fullness of the times, time was actually created for this moment time is marked by this moment god sending forth his son is the reason we know this year is being 2014. we've actually marked time itself by this event the sending of god's son and in our text here it's just five words god sent forth his son but in those five words there is much theology. And there is even more specifically much Christology. First, who did God send? Who was sent forth? It says his son. Yes, God has a son. What does it mean to be the son of God? Well, it means just what Hebrews 1 verse 8 told us it meant. Were there. God the Father is being quoted as speaking concerning the Son, where he says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father is saying that the Son is God. And so it's in text like this that we have the Father, who is, of course, divine, now attesting to the Son's likewise divinity, with texts like that, is what leads us to our view of God being multipersonal, being triune to be exact. Father, Son, and Spirit, three divine persons, persons who communicate amongst each other, therein existing together, yet at the same time remaining distinct in their persons, all making up the one being that is God. It's the Trinity. Even the Jews of Jesus' day understood the implications of Jesus being the Son of God in this unique way. Maybe this one's worth turning to. Turn to John chapter 5, verse 18. This is a remarkable text in, in, in allowing us to see just what it means to be the Son of God. What are the implications to calling oneself the Son of God? To treating God the Father as if He is your father in, in this unique way. John chapter five, verse 18 says, "For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own father, making himself equal with God." To be the Son of God is to be God. To be the Son of God is to be divine. If you look carefully again at our passage back in Galatians chapter 4, look carefully at the language that's used here to to describe the sending of the Son. Um, In this language, in these words, we see Jesus' divinity is further attested to by the grammars necessitating his pre-existence. And we see that in the words that he was sent forth. He was sent forth. Our two English words, sent forth, actually come from one Greek word. Uh, that word is ex-apostelin. It's a compound word. The root of that word is apostello. It means to send, to send away. And it even has a prefix on it to just to add some oomph to what is trying to be said. The prefix is ex out of he's being sent away he's being sent out of but where was the son being sent from where was the son before that manger scene in bethlehem from where was the son sent forth well of course he was with the father in heaven he was in heaven that's where he was that's where he was sent from that's where he was sent forth to the earth for his mission and this reality that the Son of God was there in heaven prior to Bethlehem is important. It's important to understand that the Son of God preexisted his birth in Bethlehem because there's many pseudo-Christian churches in an attempt to deny the doctrine of the Trinity that they want to teach the, the false Christology that Jesus became the Son of God at his birth or even became the Son of God later, even at his baptism. They don't want to believe the biblical teaching that God the Father and the Son have eternally coexisted as distinct persons, sharing equally the nature of God. But right here, even in the text today, we see in our text the reality that Jesus, or the Son, more exactly, was there with the Father and was sent, pre-existing his birth in Bethlehem. Another thing I want us to think about this as we think about Christmas, as we think about the sending of the Son, think about this. Remember the great sacrifice of condescension that this was for the Son of God to be sent. Because yes, God the Father sent him, but in the sending is also a willingness of the Son to come. It's what has become to be known to us as the covenant of redemption, that pact that was made between the Father, Son, and Spirit before even time began. All three persons of the Trinity, all in unity, agreeing that the Son would come into this creation that was going to be formed. And even as the Son there, before time began, was agreeing to come and was agreeing to take on this mission to to embark upon Uh, coming to this fallen world, remember where he was. Remember what he had before willfully taking on his mission to come here. Remember his existence as a divine person in the glories of heaven. The Apostle Paul never forgot this about the Son. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.8 still referred to the Son as the Lord of glory the Lord of glory. The apostle John as well was sure to record this reality of Jesus's glorious preexistence in John 17. We're there, we see Jesus praying. After having already been on this fallen earth for over 30 years, we see Jesus praying for his restoration to his place of glory. In John 17, 5, he said, now, Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, I think, is one of the greatest texts that presents this willingness of the Son to condescend to us despite the exalted position that he had in heaven prior to his birth. Let's turn to that one, Philippians chapter 2. I know we turn to it often, but... It is so significant and so great of a passage it's worth knowing exactly where it is on the page in your Bible Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 it says have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What a Savior that we have, brothers and sisters. The Son of God being willing to empty himself And how is it that he emptied himself? What does that mean? Well, it says that he took on. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself by taking on an additional nature, a human nature, a nature which would of necessity veil the glory that he had while in heaven. Jesus Christ was willing to do that for us. Our text actually back in in Galatians chapter 4 actually goes on to note this particular aspect of the sending of God's Son. Even in our text, it it, it explicates here for us the taking on of this additional nature. Look back in Galatians 4.4. It said, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son born of a woman born of a woman the son of god that glorious one who before that before the first christmas had one nature that nature was deity he was there existing in omnipresent spirit but the miracle of christmas is that the son was sent forth taking on an additional nature of mankind and was born of a woman. And this is a miracle indeed that the glorious one would would become a man and be born of a woman. For those of you who got to read a Charlie Holmes letter that he sent to us for for Christmas, if you remember what he said there, he was very right in that he marked there and noticed that the incarnation is the greatest of all miracles. The son of God becoming a man This miracle was prophesied in the the Old Testament through shadow form and texts such as Genesis 3.15 were there. Already in the very beginning of our Bibles, God was hinting at this miracle to come, that this woman would have a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. We see this prophesied in explicit terms in texts such as Isaiah 7.14 where there. It said, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us means God with us. The Son of God being born of a woman, just like you and I were. The Son of God being willing to confine himself to dwell in the womb of a human woman for nine months. What a very strange and yet amazing miracle that this is this miracle is so incredible that millions upon millions of people like Muslims for instance are perishing every year to a Christless eternity because they cannot find the grace to believe that a transcendent God could or even would condescend in such a way as this to be born of a woman We wouldn't have believed this either while we were under the the bondage of the elemental principles of the world, but by God's sovereign grace, we believe it. We believe what to the world is certainly foolishness and unbelievable. By God's grace, we believe this. The Apostle Paul mentions one more description of the incarnated Son in our text in Galatians 4.4, one more aspect of the incarnated Son before he moves on. Uh, to the purposes of the incarnation galatians 4 4 says again but when the fullness of the times came god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law born under the law the son was born under the law not only was jesus born under the the universally binding moral law of god that both jew and gentile are duty bound to keep But Jesus was born at such a time, in such a place, as to be born a Jew. And as such, Jesus was born under the old covenant law as well. In in looking at the moral aspects of, of the law, Jesus displayed in his life for us God's moral perfections. Perfect love for God, perfect love for man. Jesus was born at the fullness of the times, when these laws, God's moral laws even, had been inscripturated. There was no room left for man to doubt what God's holy standards were. And and it's funny to, to think about the fact that this scripture, these laws that were intended to show man how far from God's glory he had actually fallen, it's those same scriptures that were flipped and used to display they were used by God to display just how glorious Jesus Christ actually was and that he kept those laws perfectly second Jesus willfully put himself under them not only the moral law but also all of the additional civil and ceremonial laws of the old covenant and likewise with perfection Jesus Christ not only Kept the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, the law as well, as he willfully subjected himself to the civil requirements of living in Israel. He willfully subjected himself to the temple sacrificial system. He subjected himself to the keeping of the holy days, the Sabbaths, the festivals. And in so doing, Jesus kept and fulfilled. All of the laws that were added to actually prepare the people for himself. All of the types and shadows he fulfilled in himself. Jesus Christ kept every single law that God has ever required of any man, whether Jew or Gentile. And all of that law keeping for a very specific purpose, as our text is going to go on to say Let's read our text again. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. I'm going to begin the reading of verse 4 again. This is going to be the final points of our text. We're now going to look at the purpose of the incarnation, the purposes of the incarnation, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In these verses, in verses 5 through 7, I counted four purposes for Jesus' incarnation in all of his law-keeping. Let's just begin. Let's go through them in order. The first one listed, beginning in verse 5. Jesus was born. Jesus was sent forth so that he might redeem those who were under the law. He was redeeming those who were under the law. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was part of a great transaction. Through Jesus' life and later death, he was actually making a purchase. He was redeeming all of those whom the Father had given him, all of those who would believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile. He was redeeming all of those who had been under law. But what was the price? What was the redemption price to pay for so many cursed sinners? Well, it had to be a man. As we've learned in Hebrews chapter 2, he had to be made like us in all ways so that he may be our faithful high priest he had to become a man just like us, and he was born of a woman, and he had to be of infinite value. The price was of infinite cost. He had to be of infinite value, an infinite worth, of such a worth that there would actually be no need for any other sacrifices to come. And so in order to carry out this redemption for those who are under the law, Jesus put himself under that law in their place. In their place. In other words, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished was distinctly substitutionary, vicarious. Christ Jesus in our place. A free gift to you, Christian. Free gift. So, Merry Christmas. But that's not the only gift. Not only do we get redemption from from the curse of sin, in our bondage to sin through the sending of the son but the text here says that this redemption actually leads to another gift from god galatians chapter 4 verse 5 says so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons adoption as sons adoption into god's very family can this be true that we are actually brought into the family of God? Well, indeed, it is true. Could one receive a greater father than the Father of the Scriptures? For those who have had not had good earthly fathers, you can appreciate this gift and rejoice exceedingly in this adoption that you now have in Christ that God is your Father. And for those who have had godly fathers in this life, you've received but a taste. You've received but a glimmer of the love and protection and security that you will have for all of eternity in the grace of our Heavenly Father. We have redemption from sin. We have adoption into God's family. And it goes on. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 now. Because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The text just seems to be getting better and better, doesn't it? Because with adoption, Paul reminds us, comes another gift, the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit here is referred to as the Spirit of the Son, and here the Spirit takes His rightful place in the work of our salvations, The Father sent the Son for redemption. The Son was willing and therefore came, being born under the law, taking the curse of the law on our behalf. And now the Spirit, in turn, fills us, sealing us, ensuring us that we are, in fact, the children of God. And the Spirit of God here so ensures us of our adoption by not only prompting, prompting us to cry out to God as simply master, although he is certainly our master, but because we've been adopted, the Spirit of God comes inside of us and, and causes us to cry with a, a most intimate cry, that of Abba, Father. Abba being that Aramaic term that the youngest of children would use to refer to their father whom they loved. That word Abba is so intimate of a word that this is how the unique Son of God cried out to the Father when he was in the garden. It's recorded there in Mark 14.36. The prayer that he made before going to the cross when he was at the very height of desperacy to be heard and to be comforted by his Father, he cried out, Abba, Father, But what's amazing, somehow we likewise are brought into this relationship with God the Father by which we now speak to him with the same intimacy that the eternal Son of God spoke with him. What an unbelievable gift to have the Spirit of God in us. Let's close with Galatians 4.7. We're here, what we're really going to get is a a summary of, A summary statement in a sense of all that we've been reminded of today with once again another additional gift mentioned at the end. Galatians 4 verse 7, it says, Therefore, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The therefore at the beginning of our verse looks back to everything that God has done through the sending of His Son. Therefore, we are no longer slaves to Satan and to our sin, but we have become the sons of God. It's the difference is as wide as heaven is from hell. We're no longer sons of the devil, but sons of God. And just as the reception of the Spirit is a result of our sonship, so now too another gift is tacked on now we're told we have also become heirs we've become heirs this truth along with everything else that god has been revealing to us today is likewise on the verge of almost being too amazing to believe we're now adopted sons heirs of god's estate heirs of god's kingdom Fellow heirs with Christ, it says in Romans eight seventeen, And I'm going to turn to it again, to Revelation chapter 3, just to make sure it's still there in my Bible, because this is unbelievable. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, talking about sharing everything and inheriting everything that is God's. Revelation chapter 3, 21 says, To he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. To sit down on the throne of Jesus Christ. That's unbelievable. I'm having trouble believing that. How can we ever then, brothers and sisters, look at this temporary and passing world the same again, having just been told what we have been told about, what we have and where we stand with God because of what Christ did. How can we not praise our Savior with genuine worship from our hearts because of what he was willing to do for us? How can the gifts that we received during Christmas even compare to the gifts that we just read about? my prayer is that the gifts that we get this year and i do give gifts and i get gifts but my prayer is that this christmas these gifts will grow strangely dim to us my prayer is that they will not in the least bit distract you from being fully satisfied with the gifts that god has provided in christ and i'm going to end just by reminding them of you reminding you of them again because the son was sent we have redemption We've been freed from our our wicked slave master. We've been freed to live to God. Because the Son was sent, we have adoption into God's family. Because the Son was sent, we've been given the Holy Spirit, God himself. And because the Son was sent, we are heirs of God with Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we truly celebrate Christmas this year.